morning. Good morning. We have a one-verse assignment. I'm going to do my best to carry out that assignment. But it starts with, therefore. And you know, when it starts with, therefore, I begin to wonder. I have not found what I should wonder about yet. There's a doxology in the last few verses of chapter 11, and then there's some other stuff before that. And um, I could sing the doxology, but but maybe I shouldn't. Well, I'm going to help them with the therefore, so take heart. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Good. Um, Let's stand, please. Romans 12 starts out saying, living sacrifices. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Thank you. The word of the Lord. Thank you. I think that this chapter is my favorite chapter in the Bible. And I've been attempting for quite some time to learn it. I mean to memorize it. And I do pretty well on the first half down to verse 9. But from verse 9 on, it just seems like the subject matter just, it's like, it changes so often that I'm still having, but. In the book of Romans. We talk about the idea of offering ourselves as a Although um, Paul actually says something in this verse. Um, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's a motivating factor for doing what he calls us to do. Uh, The particular mercy that the apostle refers to here is that which has been shown to those believers of the church of Rome that he's addressing. His letter up to this point has proved that all were by nature and righteous, but because of that they were separated from and had no relationship with God. That he has shown great mercy in giving his son to die for them in their righteous state and in doing so pardoning their sin. That's the mercy of God. This was the motivation of why they should offer themselves to God in view of His mercy for them. In fact, the entire letter to the Romans up to chapter 12 is, is probably, well, without a doubt, it's, most, it's Paul's most theological letter. In fact, it's a bit of a theological treatise. He deals with the issue of sin, salvation, grace, faith, Righteousness, justification, sanctification, redemption, death, and resurrection. But beginning in Romans chapter 12, Paul changes directions and begins giving instructions on how this theology is to be lived out. Therefore, because of what I've told you and God's great mercy, this is how you are supposed to live. This is what it should look like in the life of a believer. 
So let's talk then about sacrifice. If you look in the dictionary in Webster, and I think this is a definition we would generally relate to the term as it's used in Scripture, the term sacrifice, when we think of it in Scripture. Webster says, an act, uh, sacrifice is an act of offering something precious to deity. Specifically, the offering of an immolated victim. Do you, do you know what immolated means? I, I looked it up because I found out this but I referred to the killing of a domestic animal as an offering to the deity. In the New Testament, it applies uh, to the symbol of the sacrifice, excuse me, the, the New Testament applies the symbol of sacrifice to the death of Christ. Okay? Death in both cases. Old Testament death of an animal sacrifice, New Testament Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice to us. So, when we think in terms of, uh, of sacrifice in terms of humans rather than animals, we might recall seeing one of those old movies on television where, you know, the volcano on the island is threatening to erupt. And so the natives decide that they must sacrifice to appease the gods by throwing a beautiful maiden into the volcano. done. That was actually done. Or I, I just finished a book um, about the Korean War. Um, in that book, I read an account of a soldier who threw his body on a grenade that landed in a foxhole where he and two other soldiers were. He threw his body on the grenade. He saved the other two, but his life was sacrificed as a result. So when I When we think of sacrifice in terms of humans, that that may be the direction our minds go. Someone who gives up their life, possibly for the good of or to save another. There are other kinds of sacrifice, what we might call living sacrifices. A sacrifice that someone makes on behalf of someone else. It's the story of the young man who... Um, has great academic potential. This might be back in the days of the Depression. Um, but he forgoes the opportunity to go to college so that he can stay home on the farm to help support his aging parents and the struggling family. He is an example of a living person who makes... So there are those certain images that we associate with the sacrifice. In the case of the young 
so. So, Paul, as he opens the 12th chapter of Romans, urges that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. I like the sound of that. Now, this statement presented a couple of unique concepts to his listeners. First is the idea of a living sacrifice. Probably a contradiction in terms to his audience. Um, when, when Paul speaks of sacrifice, the ritual itself was familiar to both Jew and pagan alike. Um, they both had systems of sacrifice and something died in that system, in those systems. Um, the sacrifice did not live. Its life was lost in the sacrificial process. Second, was the idea of offering your body. Heart, soul, mind, yes, but your body? Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to explain the Christian way of life in part because of the influence that Greek philosophy had on the culture that he was addressing. Greek thought taught that there are essentially two bodies in the same being. There's the physical body and the spiritual body. The idea of a spiritual body wasn't associated with and didn't begin necessarily with Christianity. But when Christianity came into being, the idea of the spirit and the physical was easily adopted and understood as the body and the soul. But the thing is, the the Greek philosophy understood that everything that related to the physical body was bad. It was evil. And everything related to the spiritual body was good. The result was, sin was often understood from two different angles. One way was to understand that you had no control over your physical body and you could not help it when you did something wrong, so there was no point in trying. I think that philosophy still prevails. This one might too. The other way of understanding it was to embrace wrongdoing because it had no effect whatsoever on your spiritual body. Remember, the two were two distinct separate things. You could sin all you wanted if you understood your spirit to be good or safe. But Paul saw our human bodies as well as our souls as creations of God. The spirit wasn't just a traveler camping out in us for our uh, three score and ten or whatever. Our bodies aren't bad and they aren't separate separate from our mind and heart. Paul uses the metaphor of the body to call us to live spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-filled lives in a very human world. In his book, Strengthening your grip, Chuck Swindoll tells that volumes are written yearly on the subjects relating to the mind, the emotional makeup, the inner person, and the spiritual body. But he says evangelicals are mum considering the physical body. He writes, You see, these bodies of ours can easily lead us off course. It isn't that the body itself is evil, it's just that it possesses 
any number of appetites that are ready to respond to surrounding stimuli, all of which are terribly appealing and temporarily satisfying. It's sometimes a struggle of the body. Oh, and and just uh, to add a thought here, I discovered this recently. When we talk about the physical body, we tend to think of weight. A scientist once computed that the average human can consume 16 times his or her weight in a year, while a horse eats only eight times its weight. This all seems to prove that if you want to lose weight, you should eat like a horse. That's your word of encouragement for the day. <laughs> we say eat like a bird, true, and that's too, and that's not true either. Uh, we think eat like a bird because there's, there's, birds are small, and compared to us, they don't eat much. But compared to a bird's size, they eat a lot. So, anyway, back to uh, back to the body. Paul had an image then of sacrifice in his mind. He would have been thinking of the religious practice in his day of offering animal sacrifice that was performed for forgiveness and thanksgiving within Jewish worship. So visual images that would come to Paul's mind would be those involving the shedding of blood, just like the audience that he was speaking to. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, Noah and his sons were instructed by God after leaving the ark never to eat the meat of an animal that still had the blood in it because blood is the life source of all living beings. So the shedding of blood was a serious thing. And an animal sacrifice was a very serious and sacred part of Jewish worship. And the Old Testament standard for the thing the animal sacrificed was the best, the healthiest, the unblemished. And it had to be a domestic, not a wild animal. You couldn't go out and, and arrow an ibex and bring that in as your sacrifice to God. It had to be a domestic animal. Um, It had to be something that you had raised and cared for and maybe had some kind of attachment to. Any of you grew up on the farm where you raised, you know, a calf or steer up to butchering weight and it came time to send it to the butcher and it was not easy? That's the idea. It's not easy. Remember the story uh, um, after David had committed his sin with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells David a story about this family that had this little lamb that they'd raised and it was like a member of the family and they cared for it and there was a rich neighbor who was going to put on a, a party and, and he instead who he owned all these flocks and herds and Instead of taking one of his animals, he comes and takes the one from this family that had this only lamb, and he sacrificed it. And David was outraged, remember? But the point is that these people had an attachment to this animal. It was something you owned. A domestic animal was something you owned. And and because it was to be unblemished, you, 
it meant that you had to take the best of the herd or flock. It's like your, you know, your prize bull that you're going to use because you know it's going to... See, taking the best cost you something. And the life of the sacrifice was lost. It was given up. And when it, was, when it was offered to God, it became sanctified, or in other words, set apart for his use and purposes. It was hands-off after that. When you offered it as a sacrifice, it wasn't yours to do anymore. It was now God's. Hmm. Let's fold that over on a living sacrifice. And every sacrifice was assumed to be vitally connected with the spirit of the worshiper. Unless the heart accompanied the sacrifice, God rejected the gift. So, let's talk about this living sacrifice thing. Then, in order to be a living sacrifice, we must die first. Woo, wait a minute, that's not... Let's, let's move on to this a little bit. In order to be a living sacrifice, we must die first. One gentleman had this to say. The trouble with living sacrifice is Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have to die to that nature that says me. Self-centeredness, selfishness. It does have to become thy will and not my will. And listen, a living sacrifice is more than just a body that's breathing in and out. A living sacrifice is one that's spiritually alive as well as physically alive. See, we are are called to unreservedly put ourselves at the disposal of God. All of ourselves. We cannot remain ours and be presented for a holy purpose. We cannot remain ours and be presented for holy Thank you. 
spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifices. This is your reasonable or acceptable act of worship, depending on the scriptures, or spiritual act of worship, depending on the version that you look at. And Peter says, you are also like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this isn't one of Paul's letters. This is Peter saying basically the same things. Which tells us, and this is the next point, the body we offer must be acceptable to God. The operative word here is the one that precedes acceptable. Holy. Holiness is what makes us acceptable to God. So, tying it in with what Peter said, living stones, Paul says living sacrifices. Spiritual act of worship, Peter says we're being built into a spiritual house. Holy and pleasing to God, Peter says, we're a holy priesthood. And this is your spiritual or acceptable or reasonable act of worship, and Peter says spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy... In all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That, folks, is what makes a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. It must be a holy sacrifice. You couldn't say that about a lamb or a goat or a bull. But that's a requirement of a living sacrifice. To be acceptable to God, it must be holy. In Hebrews 12:14, we find these words, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord.
athletic purifiers called everything to contaminate body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence to God. And by the way, this act of offering an Old Testament sacrifice and a New Testament sacrifice of ourselves is a reverence act. It should be supposed to be perfecting holiness out of reverence to God. Romans chapter 6 verse 13 Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin yet give yourselves completely to God for you were dead but now you have new life so use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God and that's what we as holy people desire to do amen First Corinthians 6, 18-20 Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price so you must honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. How do we destroy the temple? We'll adjust that in a moment, too. And... You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, the scriptures that I read point to two prevalent things that contaminate the body. We, we see it happening all the time in our culture. The first is sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexual sin. No matter what is culturally or socially acceptable, God's sin And those defile our bodies. Um, I, I addressed this a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I said I told you about the guy that I was I was counting with him and his wife to be and and talking about sexual involvement. He said, you know, well, you wouldn't you wouldn't buy a car without trying it out first. And then we've got this whole issue of cohabitation now. By the way. Satan foists these lies on us all the time. People will say, well, you know, we've got to know if we're compatible with each other, blah, 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 blah. Secular statistics, these did not come from Dobson, say that there's a higher divorce rate and a higher rate of spousal and child abuse when people cohabitate before they get married. But you will never hear that mentioned in the world we live in. So those, those impact or contaminate the body. The other that is addressed is the destruction of our body. This is a temple in which God dwells. And I guess, I guess you could say even what I've just talked about regarding sexual sin is the destruction of, of our spirits at the very least. And sometimes we know that sexual involvement and the things that can result from that, the diseases and things, can actually destroy the body. And by the way, I've, I've always had a big problem. We don't hear about this much anymore, but when the AIDS epidemic was big news, there were 
uh, Christian leaders out there who said, well, God whipped up aid as a punishment for Christians who engage in this kind of activity. I do not agree with that. I think God says, don't do these things because I designed a moral universe and it's built into the system. I'm telling you, don't do it because if you do, here's the natural consequences of that. I didn't just rip this up to punish somebody who engages in this kind of behavior. I knew that this would be the consequence if you engaged in that kind of behavior. So, yeah, we can destroy the, the body through those kinds of behaviors. But I think we, again, culturally speaking, and sometimes even in the church, we have an unhealthy predisposition for things that can be destructive to our bodies, the physical body. Harmful habits and addictions. Destructive to the body, which is God's temple. And by the way, those things can be destructive to the spirit as well. And we tend to think in terms of drug and alcohol and tobacco addictions when we think of those things. And there's more than ample evidence to prove that these things are destructive to our bodies. And, and, and when, so we say, you know, uh, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You need, you need to avoid these kind of things that are destructive to the body. And I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. But here's another issue I think that we don't always talk about when it comes to habitual, addictive kinds of things that are destructive to the body, and it's this. Addiction, by definition, is something that has control of you. Right? I mean, you've got to do it. So I say, wherever that thing, whether it's a drug or alcohol or tobacco or anything else, a gambling addiction, a sexual addiction, wherever that thing has a hold in your body, that's, it has control and that's a place where God doesn't. He does not have control there. Right? If that thing is in control of you, then that's a place in your life where God does not have control. And God wants control. Doesn't he want... That's what offering our bodies as living sacrifices is about. Remember, you lay it on the altar and you take your hands off. It's God's now. Except, oh, I've got this different And these same kind of issues are not just... They don't just affect the body, they impact our mind. It's not just a matter of drugs, alcohol, and tobacco use or addiction. We can cause considerable harm to our bodies as a result of the activities got a big problem with that. Our unhealthy diets can cause as much damage to our bodies, our heart, like heart issues and diabetes and blood pressure, and the list goes on and on and on as any addiction could. And there's more than one way to destroy God's temple. 
And folks, in my mind, that is a steward's decision. We only get one of these. We only get one of these. So, we'll leave it at that. And then Paul goes on to say, offering our body is the sensible, the reasonable, the acceptable thing to do. And again, it depends on the version you read. I think in the NIV, this is your spiritual act of worship. That's how it's rendered. Um, some others, which is your reasonable uh, service. And, and I know in one version it says that's the most sensible way to serve God is by offering your body as a living sacrifice. So what Paul is saying here, that in view of God's mercy, because all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ, the logical, the reasonable, the sensible response is to offer ourselves to Jesus. One might say, why do you see that is what those who have been saved by grace, by the grace and mercy of God do. Right? That's what we do. Paul writes in Philippians 2.17, But even if I am being poured out like a green coffee on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. you hear what he is being poured out on? The sacrifice and service coming from your faith. They were One commentator says this, just as under the old dispensation the mind expressed its devotion through the ritual of sacrifice, so now under the new dispensation its worship comes in the form of self-dedication. I offer myself to you. That's my sacrifice. And in Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with, with such sacrifice of God is only living sacrifices can do those things. Right? The fruit of lips praise God, that confess His name, and to do good and to share with others. That is what a living sacrifice does. And because we are living, the sacrifice and accompanying service goes on and on and on till the day that we're not living here anymore and we're in the presence of Jesus. That is what God has called us. If I could have those who will be serving the elements of communion to us come forward and if you would go ahead and begin serving. <laughs>